This is Footnote Forum, a production of the Law Review at City University of New York School of Law. I'm Rena Novotnik, your editor and host, and I'm joined by my staffers. Damachula. Rachel Goldman. Sadwis. Maya Kwasi. Ariel Federo. Shazab Bushidalal. And Andrew Miller. This year on the podcast, we will be focusing on the Freedom of Information Act and the Freedom of Information Law, or FOIA and FOIA. Right now, you're listening to the second half of our first episode with Professor Cox. I'm Douglas Cox. I'm a law library professor here at CUNY Law. Professor Cox's research focuses on the intersection between national security and information policy, and we've invited him on the show to answer some of our most pressing questions about the nature of FOIL and FOIA. FOIA was passed originally in 1966 on the federal side, and New York FOIL came along later in 1974. They were both created as part of a plan to sort of increase government transparency. On the federal side, there had been earlier under the Administrative Procedures Act, a provision that was designed to do the same thing, but it had been in practice used to essentially deny access to federal records. So the FOIA litigation 1966 was designed to expand that access. The history of it has been the history of no matter what they, how they change the law or how they amend it, agencies will try to find new ways around it or new ways to interpret it. And a lot of the amendments over the years have been to sort of like nail down some additional issues that have been coming up in the courts. There was the original 66 law. It was amended then in, I think, 74 that added some additional things that were going to uh, make it more clear that it applied to intelligence agencies and expanded that scope, which caused a lot of problems. I think the it was the 74 amendment that then... President Ford had vetoed, and then they had to override the veto to get it passed into law. Then there have been more recent amendments. There was the E-FOIA Act, which was making it absolutely clear that records include electronic material that is being retained by the agencies. And then the most recent amendments were also a highlight in terms of fixing some of the misuse of the fee schedules, as I was mentioning earlier, so making it more difficult for agencies to be able to apply fees to requesters, especially after the agencies have failed to comply with the basic precept of FOIA that you provide records within 20 working days. Uh, They also put in an interesting one, which for sort of longer term research is an important limitation, which is uh, one of the most commonly used exemptions is called B5, which is the deliberative process exemption. And The FOIA requester community sort of refers to it as the withhold anything you want exception because they, within the deliberative process, agencies often claim that something's B5 and it's, uh, well, we can't release this because it would chill further communications in the future about candid conversations, but it's been used so broadly. And also it's been used sort of over time. So they did put in a, uh, some restriction on it that limits it to 25 years because you had situations like with the CIA who continues just to hold on to their records and you can have, they're uh, claiming that they can't give you something from 30 years ago because it's covered by B5. That's a deliberative discussion that was occurring. And so they're at least putting some sort of time limitation on that as well. Not all of the amendments over time, however, have enhanced transparency. There was a particularly difficult law that was passed, I think it was in the early 80s, the the CIA Information Act that basically excludes significant portions of CIA operational records from FOIA altogether. So they're not subject to FOIA on the basis that those records would almost 
assuredly be classified, but it's had the effect of sort of the CIA then categorizes a lot of things under that that maybe should fall under an exception to that rule. So generally, I think the, uh, the model has been amendments to sort of further refine and improve FOIA, but sometimes it's also uh, further increasing the withholdings. And is there anything in the works to open that up as far as that restriction around the CIA? No, and in fact, the DOD has been wanting to get their own sort of similar exception, and they keep trying to put it in at various points, and then it gets kicked back. And it is interesting sort of how in the context of these amendments and bills that come out, because there's often a FOIA bill, and you know, it, it's interesting because sometimes you never quite know who the senator or member of the House, there are some of them that really care about FOIA and they, they will get involved in these things. And sort of sometimes it's something you don't expect to sort of will knock down something and say, no, they shouldn't have that. Do other countries do this? Or do you have a sense of the sort of model internationally? You know, how far back does this go? Apparently, the first FOIA law internationally was Sweden with, uh, they have a, uh, Right to Press Act from 1766, so 200 years before the U.S. But the U.S. It was sort of earlier in this process, even though it was 200 years later that we had our own FOIA law. According to the U.N., at 1990, there were still only 13 countries with a FOIA law in some form. I mean, the U.N. itself uh, interprets the freedom of information as an important human right. And they trace it back to the human rights documents as a piece of this sort of larger freedom of expression. But now there has been an increased emphasis on it. And there are currently over 100 countries that have a FOIA law in some form. And obviously, in every country, including our own, there is a difference between having the law in the books and that law having any teeth and that law being effective as a practical matter. But there has been a growth in the recognition that citizens should have a right to information about what their government is up to. And do you have a sense, as far as where FOIA stands presently with the U.S., are we an outlier, are we a trailblazer, have other countries caught up and surpassed us in regards to transparency? I mean, I, yeah, I think it depends greatly on the, on the country, and also it can depend on who's in charge of a country at any given time. I think there has been so much litigation in the U.S. in FOIA, and it has developed over time. I think some countries do look to the U.S. as a guide for what would this law look like and how would it work in practice. So I think in some sense we're, we could be part of the trailblazers because people look at, to us as an example. But, you know, there, there could be countries where the transparency is even better and more efficient than how it's working here. Do you have a sense on the state level where New York is with FOIA comparatively? Like, are we an outlier trailblazer. I mean, I think New York, you know, it happened earlier. So 74, so not long after, not too long after FOIA. And I, some of the other states took longer to get that. And, and I think New York FOIA has a good reputation in the sense of while there are, of course, problems with it, New York is a little bit more forward-leaning in terms of transparency. And they're looking at it, you know, the expansion of some of it to legislative materials. And there are often Again, bills in New York where they're looking at how can we improve a New York foil. So I think it is on the better end. There are some states that have a much lower reputation for how their FOIA law is administered. There are also some states that have like restrictions, like only somebody within the state or only a citizen of the state could submit a FOIA request from those states. Also, some of them use their fee category somewhat punitively to discourage 
But then there are also some other states that have a, a very good reputation, like Florida has a very strong transparency law that you know, it works quite well. So. On a federal level here in the United States, has the FOIA tool been politicized? Do you feel it's been influenced by changes in administration, both in the legislation and the executive bodies? Yeah, no, I think that is, is definitely an issue that arises. And whenever you have like a new president, the attitude of that president flows downward through the executive agencies that are responsible for administrating FOIA. And it's interesting because I think it it's sort of a double-edged sword in certain ways where like when President Obama came into office, it was one of his things that he focused on a lot was like we need to increase transparency and we need to uh, release more documents and more information to make the public aware. And there was high expectations and then those high expectations were not always met. People were like, well, wait, I thought that you were talking about more transparency and it looks like based on some of these statistics that we're withholding more information than we were before. But there can also be, you know, maybe there was additional requests that were made because there was a feeling of, oh, this should be more open now. There was a greater expectation of the amount. And I think that then more people were putting in more FOIA requests and focusing on this more, which also then sort of skewed the statistics because then there was still uh, sort of the need to deal with all of those exemptions and some of them uh, and, you know, when they applied and when they didn't. Um, and if there's an increase in requests, there also then appear to be a, a decrease in transparency. And then in the current administration, obviously there's been the opposite of, uh, of that, where the attitude is, we're going to withhold these things. Why does anybody need these? The national security, law enforcement, we, uh, uh, safety is what's important here, and we shouldn't be releasing this sort of information. And from the top down, you have a retraction of this view of where the proper line is on public transparency about things. But there's also, it's a double-edged sword because you then have been in situations where there's also been an increase in FOIA activity, obviously now to sort of try to figure out what the Trump administration is doing. And it can go too far, which can actually be helpful to litigants. So in these situations that we're watching on television and when there's FOIA litigation and things, sometimes the DOJ and trying to defend the Trump administration and withholding things is taking positions that are even more extreme and making assertions that are so extreme that in a funny way, sometimes it can be helpful because when you take a much more extreme position, you then have when the judiciary is willing to step in, the judges are, you know, who have gone through several different administrations and have seen the different arguments made over time is somebody's very resistant to it. And they're like, well, wait, wait, this is, you've tried to make this argument before and then what you were arguing was this. Now you're arguing something completely different and I don't know that you have the, the support for it. So when an administration goes too far, there sometimes can be a, the, the judiciary feels a little bit more empowered and they also feel a little bit more of a need to be a little bit more involved and force the issue in certain cases. So there can be a, a positive in encouraging the judiciary to act under FOIA and FOIL a little bit broader than they maybe would have four years ago. But there is definitely a feel that you, as you move from one administration to another, what is their attitude going to be towards transparency? And that just filters down because when you all the way, when you go down to that government employee who's looking at your request and looking at should we produce this document or not, that thing, even though it's sort of a very high level, the idea of we are moving towards more transparency 
rather than less can influence a decision about do I redact this or do I not. We have an instance of that. Cases where an agency makes an extreme argument in order to avoid releasing documents, particularly in the most recent administration. I don't have a specific one off the mind, although I, the ones that jumped to my mind are those situations where the DOJ is being forced to make a position that is contrary to something the president has tweeted. Oh, okay. This has happened a few mm-hmm. times where the, there's a FOIA plaintiff who's like, well, the president said this in the tweet, and DOJ is forced to say, well, that wasn't an official statement by the president. That was just some tweet, and they still are asserting something that's contrary to what the president has publicly said. I, mean, I guess that's an example of it. I believe there was an example in the context of some of the drone killing, targeted killing memos, where, again, the government was saying that certain things had not been acknowledged, and the court was sort of, I think it was the Second Circuit, questioning about whether certain material had, in fact, been already acknowledged, and the DOJ was still insisting that nobody had ever admitted that. Is there any point in time, any administration in the history of the U.S. that has succeeded in outright cutting off the tool? Not since FOIA. Over time, there has been you know, increases in trying to limit it. So like under the George W. Bush administration, they issued an executive order that limited things a bit more and was tightening the screws on certain exemptions and how they were going to interpret things and their presumptions about things. And then President Obama came in and undid some of those. And you also see the influence of different administrations over time. So uh, some of the amendments that happened in the 1970s, expanding FOIA was as a result of Nixon and Watergate and these situations of hiding documents. And a corollary to what I was discussing that like when you have a somebody that is acting not in the interest of the, the government, the Congress and judges can become more emboldened and need, feel the need to step in. And that was some of the good amendments that we got in FOIA and also the creation of the Presidential Records Act was as a result of what was happening during the Nixon administration. This is something that I think you've alluded to multiple times, but the past few decades we've seen the executive branch increasingly demand deference to secret or covert operations, particularly in the realm of foreign affairs, I think. And how has FOIA changed accordingly, or has it even? Yeah, that is one area where it's very tricky, and I think it's one area where... The administration that is in has the ability to negatively affect FOIA in the most bold way, which is to the extent that that is the one area, as I mentioned before, where uh, with the B1 exemption for classified information, that's the one that the courts give the most deference to determinations by the administration. So in those circumstances, when especially when we have things that are going on, like the torture program, like the NSA uh, surveillance program, that do involve some classified information that allows a lot of that to be withheld based on those assertions, and that can be driven from the top about how transparent are we going to be. That is the one that the president, I think, has the most effect on. So in the context of the torture program, for example, one of the great things that President Obama had done was release voluntarily using his power as the presidency to release some of those memos, the DOJ memos about the justification for the torture program. And what is good about FOIA in the national security context is once something gets released, then you can sort of use that as a bootstrap for other things. So once uh, the government has formally 
acknowledged something that was formerly classified, then that information that might exist in other documents that were previously be withheld, those documents can be looked at again. And in the ACLU v. DOD case that was involving torture documents, they did this expertly, which is as new information was coming out, they would go back and argue it again and saying you were withholding these documents, but those documents relate to this thing that has now been acknowledged and they got more the next time. And so you see these different even versions of the same document. So internal CIA records, the first time it was produced, there was hardly anything that wasn't redacted. And then after additional litigation, it came and it had more redactions. And then two years later, it has even fewer redactions. So to the extent that information gets out, that is information that then can be used to sort of go back and revisit and get more transparency. And also the courts have challenged these situations. So when there are situations where something has been acknowledged by the government, still sometimes the agency will say, oh, this still has to be withheld. And the courts, in those circumstances, when there has been a public acknowledgement of something, that's when they start to get a little bit more involved and will say, and actually, I'm looking at this. Isn't this the same thing that was acknowledged publicly by the president to sort of push them on these issues that they would normally give a lot of deference on. Do you feel like this executive practice is an overreach of the executive's powers? Yeah, I, I, I think uh, there is too much classification. And, you know, this is not a unique position that a lot of people, even within government and formerly within government, that there is this default to classify things. And then I think in the context of FOIA, there's a couple of things at work. One, could there be high-level policy things about, well, we don't want anybody to know this. The other part of it is also just the, if it's classified, let's just not touch it. Let's not look through the issue about whether or not this, this, this is really properly classified or not. And if, it, well, if somebody put classified on it, let's just assert that it's classified rather than taking a closer look at it and really digging into it about whether the, all of the information here is or ought to be classified. And so there's both an inertia about it, and then there's just sort of the high-level policy thing about what should be our emphasis towards transparency. So you've talked a little bit about sort of victories for like liberals in the left and using FOIA for government transparency in the ACLU's um, request and advocacy around America's drone war and torture programs. Can you give examples of sort of FOIA victories from the right? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, there's some organizations. And it's interesting because FOIA itself is a, I guess I would call it a neutral thing. But then it's just, there's both a question of who's using it, what are they requesting? And then also there is this other thing where the records that are requested go to the organization itself or to the requester, um, and then also what they're choosing to put out. So again, sometimes the distinction between right and left is a little bit tricky, but uh, like Judicial Watch is one that has been very successful. It's an organization that has, uh, during the Clinton administration, during uh, the most recent election, they were very active in the Hillary Clinton emails, uh, and they are unstoppable in the sense that they 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 will make a request, they will follow up on every single request, they will file a lawsuit, and because of the focus on who they're focusing on, whose records, and then their uh, their success at it, and their ability to go through the go through those records to find pieces of it that uh, support some of the positions that they have, um, that's been they've been one of the more successful organizations that I, I think is generally considered to be on the right. Do you, do you see kind of a difference between sort of like advocates who are genuinely interested in open government and government transparency and sort of people who are more cynically using it for sort of a partisan end? Yeah, well, I, I see both of that, which is 
because they're it's just it's similar i think in my mind to sort of the oversight committees within congress when you have changes and flips in administration and who controls congress so uh when one party owns the presidency and the other party owns the oversight committees suddenly the oversight committee uh and the people on that on the other side are very focused on transparency and the federal records laws and compliance with things and then uh, the other ones are saying this is just sort of a witch hunt, and then it gets flipped, and there's a new president, and the other side has the oversight committee, and suddenly these issues become important. Now, I, that that's a little bit, even myself, a little bit cynical, uh, but there is, uh, but then there are also organizations that are sort of focused on transparency generally, and are trying to get as many records as they can and make them available, regardless of whether the information in them supports one narrative or another. I'm trying to understand your personal belief in open government. Do you just believe in open government regardless of who the administration is? I would say yes. I mean, I think I, I would like for something like FOIA to be, to be administered in that way that I generally feel like the, uh, the more information and the more transparency, the better. Obviously, people will take pieces of it to make different arguments, but I think more information being out there, whether it's perceived as good or bad for one side, is generally better than a situation in which transparency is much more selective in a way that is designed to support one side or the other. So you don't necessarily, like, because to me, open government, like, I can see how it can fit in both ideological projects. If I'm, like, right-wing, I want to have an open government because I want to track every single tax dollar to make sure there, there is no government waste. Um, and if I'm on the left, I want to make sure that the government isn't sort of using its discretion to harm vulnerable groups. Do you sort of swing towards one or two of those views, or is it sort of open government, it's just the medium through which the political process should play through? I, if I had to pick one, I'd pick the latter, which is that I think we need to create structures and produce uh, and sort of have a, a FOIA and a FOIL that try to maximize transparency with the idea that um, with the understanding and acceptance that sometimes that will be used in ways that we don't agree with, and sometimes the effect of it may not be something that we like, but that, you know, it, rather than affecting the open government part of it, it's more a question of what are our other structures and what are our other ways of debating things and examining things and understanding things that can sort of ameliorate or at least sort of highlight when things are being um, properly contextualized or when things are being taken out of context. Uh, to manipulate the narrative. There is always a problem, and I think FOIA sort of flows into this, of, and it sort of connects to this general problem we have about sort of information being mediated or not mediated generally, where um, the idea that raw documents, raw emails, um, raw underlying documents that maybe are just a piece of the picture are being sort of made fully publicly available, which allows everyone to sort of cherry pick what they want out of it versus the old school way of sort of there's journalists and they get some access to some information and then they are sort of trying to put it into context with interviews with experts in order to sort of then mediate a more contextualized picture of it in in the context of and you know and obviously that just happened more generally in terms of everybody getting information from the sources that seem to agree with them um, and that could be more limited and there's not that in some ways that's good that not everything is mediated for us, but in another way, um, it can lead to sort of 
bunch of things being taken out of in, uh, out of context. And I think also there's a larger picture, like in the context of the Clinton emails, for example, there was also just an emphasis on it. And the proper, you know, was there an issue here is one question, but how should that issue be seen in the larger picture of what's important and how it reflects on who should be elected president is a much you know, a bigger topic on either side. Do you have any sort of like qualifications or concerns about sort of government transparency or like open government? Sort of are, are there like beyond the sort of exemptions that are already in like FOIA law? Are there other kind of concerns that you have about sort of overreach of transparency? I mean, I think I think the exemptions themselves, again, as they're written, I think they generally follow a reasonable thing. But I think it was just where it's the devil's in the details in terms of I, and it's the, really the tricky and gray areas is when you're trying to apply, you know, what is the balance between the public interest in something and somebody's privacy in a given situation? And I think those can create situations that are really tricky about, well, there is some public interest in the disclosure of this information, but there is also a, a right to privacy of individuals that can arise and sort of and what the right answer is on any given thing can uh, really be problematic. What's your favorite government document I've ever received? Ah. So uh, I have to say what that is, is in some of my research, I was trying to get, I was trying to figure out where the documents that the United States seized from Panama in 1989, where they were. And um, I had tried this little trick, which is outside of FOIA, uh, where I was writing an article for a a journal called The American Archivist. And uh, I wanted to just try to find whether somebody would willingly give me an answer about where these things were. So I called various places and I said, I'm writing an article for The American Archivist. And some places assumed that I must be press because they're <laughs> like, we don't know what this American Archivist is. Uh, some sort of organization, some sort of uh, uh, publication. And so there was a couple of public affairs offices that actually answered my questions. And then there, the Defense Intelligence Agency, who I've almost never successfully gotten any useful documents out of um, through FOIA, um, they specifically said, I was like, I think you guys have scans or copies of these. And they came back to me and said, we have no scans or copies of records seized from Panama. And I said, okay, that's very clear. And I even followed up just making sure that they were, that, that they were answering my question. And they said, yes, we have none. And then my uh, saviors, the National Archives, the, they had various FOIA requests with them, and they were bouncing these FOIA requests around in various places. Uh, they thereafter, and so this became my favorite thing when it was produced about two years later, they produced a memo from the, the month that the, uh, there was the month before the DIA was denying they had these records. It was a memo of a very high-level ongoing um, discussion between the DIA and other agencies about what to do with their copies of the Panama <laughs> records. So it was like a perfect situation of like, they bold-faced were lying to me when the, they, very senior people were talking about this very issue at that exact same time. So that was satisfying, although ultimately I got no mea culpa from the DIA or anything else from them. But um, I'd have to say that. Thank you. Uh, and I have a, I have a follow-up question. Um, so are you worried that to avoid making government records, um, you know, agency heads will say, oh, let's just have this conversation 
over lunch where, you know, they're, we're not creating a record. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's definitely a problem. And, and it's, um, it's an interesting thing where um, it goes back to that, that distinction between the private and the public where private companies, that's the sort of thing. They're like, well, there's something sensitive here. Let's not put this in writing. Um, agencies do do that sometimes, but under um, the law and uh, on the federal side and the state side, there is actually a duty to document. And um, the federal one says, you know, agencies shall create and maintain records sufficient not only to protect the rights of government, but to protect the rights of people affected by government activities. And that gets ignored sometimes. Um, And it's something that uh, that has been interpreted by the National Archives um, in a broad way. So they did a deep dive into CIA records in the late 90s. And there were these situations where they were saying, so you make these types of decisions, but we're not seeing any records about them. And they were like, oh, well, we normally do that over a secure line or in person. And they're like, no, no. If you're going to have a substantive conversation and make a decision on behalf of the agency about something like that, if it's done over the phone, if it's done in person, you need to create a memo about that conversation and the decision that was made. And they've sort of enforced that. And again, I think it goes back to the importance of the FOIA exemptions. That's why those exemptions are there, so that uh, the agency should feel and should feel obligated to create and document what they're doing with the understanding that if the information falls into one of those categories, if it is legitimately sensitive because of one of those categories, it will be withheld. But the idea that agency employees are taking that upon themselves to create an extra level of problem by saying we're not going to create a record for that. That's something that I really does need to be addressed, um, and people need to be told that that's not the right answer. Uh, I've worked in the federal government. I'm currently an employee of the state of New York, and from my perspective, if I were ever told, don't write this down, I would go back to my desk and I would create a document documenting all the stuff that they told me not to write down and documenting who told me not to write it down. But that's me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then I have one more follow-up question about context. So it sounds like one of the, you know, maybe, maybe problems of open government is this lack of context that people are creating, or the problem that people are creating is lack of context. How can that be ameliorated? Whose job is it to create context, and how can we create context for the documents that we're getting that are so vast? Yeah, that's tricky. I mean, I think, I mean, there's, I think there's a bigger issue here about how we as a society consume information and where we're getting it from, and um, who we could or could not trust to sort of uh, contextualize things for us. Um, and some of that is about personal decisions that we make. I think in the context specifically, and, and this is a bit more limited, but in the context of FOIA, uh, one part of it, I think, is to keep at it. So I mentioned the National Security Archive before, and their way of approaching FOIA is, I think, how we should all approach FOIA when it's about something that uh, we're trying to develop facts around, which is they just keep at it. So they make an initial request and they get some documents and they recognize that some of these documents, that this isn't the full picture. Those documents might reference other documents or they reference some sort of office and they submit another FOIA request and they get some additional material and that, and then they see cross-references in there and they just keep building. So they're creating the record. Now, obviously if, if, 
we were approaching issues that we are foying in that way and we had the time to do that, I think it does create a much fuller picture. And when you look at something, you know, a, they have these briefing books that the National Security Archive on their website about various topics. They've really developed the record on something and you do get that sort of nuance about, oh, the, the government had this issue and they really did look at all the, these issues and then these were some of the decisions that were made. And um, it gives a much fuller picture than would have been the case if they had relied on the initial documents that they got. So one of the things that we've learned over time um, is that it's very hard to uh, get rid of every single copy of a document. And so even if, 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 if there is a problem of an agency sort of sanitizing things, you find some sort of reference to another document and another thing, and then they thought they didn't have any more copies of this, but then it's in a different office. Um, and so I think it's, if, you, if keeping at it can help add uh, some context, but the larger issue is sort of beyond the scope of my uh, knowledge in terms of how we can really, it's just the way that we consume information. You've been listening to part two of two of the first episode of Footnote Forum. I'm Rena Novotnik, editor, host, and the music composer. Thanks to staffers Dan Majula, Rachel Goldman, Cesar Ruiz, Maya Kwasi, Ariel Federo, Shaza Bushi Dalal, and Andrew Miller. Thanks also to our editor-in-chief, Audrey Juarez, and the rest of the managing editorial board. Catch us next time for an interview with CUNY law students Joanna Lopez and Jacqueline Mann on their work at the Immigration Detention Center in Dilly, Texas, and the role that transparency and open government have to play in promoting safety and accountability in the immigration context. Until next time, I'll leave you with a quote from a famous Supreme Court decision. This from Hutchins v. KQED, Inc. In Hutchins, the court held that members of the press have no special First Amendment right to access prison facilities, even to investigate abuses. In his dissent, Justice Stevens wrote, Without some protection for the acquisition of information about the operation of public institutions like prisons by the public at large, the process of self-governance contemplated by the framers would be stripped of its substance.